Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. And uh, Sean, here we go. Thank you for joining me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be uh, part of Redefining Society today, Marco. Yes. I'm, uh, I'm on high alert, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, always, it's always nice. So for those that for the first time listen to Sean and I, uh, while we have our own individual shows, we also have, uh, we like to invite each other on, on the same show. And, and we never know where we're going with this, right? We, I never know where Sean is going to start. <laughs> and we don't know where he's going to end. <laughs> Right. Neither do I. That's the fun part. Just right. See where right. we roll. I know. I know. But you know, there's one thing we never we never get bored of having conversation. And one thing is that we never get bored. The reason, the main reason, is because we're so lucky to get in touch and have conversation with so many incredible people that are somehow changing our society, and. Uh, I don't know if they're changing it, but certainly they're trying their best to make it a better place. And uh, today we're going to talk about an institute. And I feel like this is the 10th episode, to be honest, because we have talked so much already about our ideas, our plan, how ITSP Magazine and the, the High Alert Institute can collaborate, that, uh, that finally we got to the first recording. And we're going to learn, Sean, about this. So you are in high alert. I'm in high alert. What does it mean? Exactly. I have no idea. <laughs> let's, let's ask our guest. Who, who's on with us today, Marco? Well, today we have uh, Maurice and Alison, and in particular, Dr. Maurice Ramirez and uh, Alison Sakara. I hope I didn't chop the last name. And if I did, I apologize. And they are the founders of an organization, a nonprofit called the High Alert Institute. And uh, I want to welcome you both, Maurice and Alison. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Thank you, Sean. Such a pleasure. And I want people to know that this is the first one of many conversation because I don't even know where to start with all the things that you do. So that will be my second question, my first one will be, who are you? <laughs> Maurice and Alison, a little introduction about yourself so that our audience become familiar with you, whomever wants to start. Certainly, Marco. I'm Alison Sakara, And yes, you did a nice job with that with them with my name, oh, along yes. with Dr. Ramirez. Um, <laughs> I am a co-founder of the High Alert Institute. I currently serve as their executive director and have done so since we established in our, as a 501c3 back in 2011. My background is as a pediatric and as a family nurse practitioner. And I have decades of experience working in hematology, oncology, and disaster response primarily. I've been also a clinical and regulatory affairs consultant to the biotech industry since uh, the 1990s. And on a personal side, I've done a lot of volunteering with animal rescue organizations over the years, and I enjoy training uh, rescues as therapy dogs. And we are joined here in the office by our current uh, 
pack of five rescue dogs on a daily basis. Hello, Sean and, and Marco. I'm uh, Maurice Ramirez. Uh, as Allison said, I'm also a co-founder of the High Alert Institute, and I serve as the chairperson for the Institute's board of directors. I'm a disaster medicine and emergency medicine physician. Uh, I'm a little unique in the physician world. I hold 10 board certifications in medicine and research, including disaster medicine, emergency medicine, and artificial intelligence medicine. Allison and I are both founding uh, Homeland Security Medical Officers, and I've been in disaster response since 1982. In addition, I'm the founding chairperson of the American Board of Disaster Medicine. That's the national and now international certifying board for disaster medicine specialists. And I'm the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award in Disaster Medicine. I've earned a medical degree, two PhDs, but I'm equally proud of being a Clown College graduate. See, and this is exactly why I didn't want to do the introduction. <laughs> but the both of you, it's already, already overwhelming and incredible. Very, very much incredible, Sean. I, I think we're in for some treats today and learning a lot. I know. I know. And yeah, I mean, where, where to start with all the, all the things you've done? I know we want to go directly to High Alert Institute and... Um, I don't know. I, I feel like we'll we'll kind of pull on some of the strings of the other things you're involved with along the way, because I, I feel that that uh, you, your history and your past probably led you to to where you are now with the institutes. So let, let's start there, and uh, we'll we'll see where things go. What what is the High Alert Institute? Why was it founded? What's its objective? Uh, how is how's it uh, progressed over time? Well, the High Alert Institute is a not-for-profit char charity educating people, families, communities, businesses, and organizations to be disaster-ready in what we call an all-hazards, one-framework paradigm. We were founded in 2002 in the wake of the 9-11 attacks of 2001 and became officially a not-for-profit charity in 2011. For the last 20 years, we've fulfilled our mission primarily through disaster research and in-person disaster training. We've, in fact, trained all of the hospitals in Colorado, half of those in Georgia, Florida, and all of the hospitals in both North and South Carolina, in addition to hospitals in almost all of the continental United States. Uh, we've also trained almost all of the counties, both Florida, Georgia, and Colorado. Uh, and we trained primarily frontline healthcare workers and first responders, law enforcement and fire rescue. In 2022, uh, as the entire planet is beginning to make its post-pandemic plans, we pivoted the Institute uh, to expand our vision and our mission, uh, including a number of uh, programs that are so numerous, we'll be recounting them with you and review and looking at them uh, and exploring their basis over the next several episodes. Yeah, that's absolutely the intention. And, and uh, I... I the first time that you share with me kind of like a memo of all the things that you do, I said, this is 10 episodes. So we have to, we have to split it. <laughs> so we already have a lot of questions, but we yeah, want my head to. head is full of things I want to know. <laughs> I know. I mean, first of all, I'm interested into the, 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 the vision that it's all connected. I think that's what inspired me the most when, when we talked for the first time and we were introduced by, our common friend uh, Sean, the other, the other Sean, and um, so uh, what? What's this vision? Like this idea that that made you and maybe Allison, you wanna you wanna start with it? That put all of this together, like this vision of a one uh, one organization that should touch on all of these topics. We refer to the paradigm that we live, work, and play in as an all-hazards, one-framework approach. And what I mean by that is many people, families, businesses, organizations, really don't have a set plan for what to do about a disaster before crisis strikes. Oftentimes, the plans are hurriedly put together in the midst of a crisis, or maybe folks only have an inkling of what they might do if they have to. 
the most common reasons that disaster plans and business continuity planning are not prioritized can be either, and that reason behind that can be either dollars or resources or just plain time. But we see planning as, as a priority, but when planning is seen as a priority, even when folks try to do that, the approach may be viewed as an overwhelming task. All too often, folks are trying to establish a different plan for every single possible thing that could go wrong. Everything, single situation has its own uh, steps to run through. The equivalent of, uh, I'll be old school here, the equivalent of the three ring binder on the shelf. You got one for tornadoes, one for hurricanes, one for earthquakes, one for floods, but seemingly none of them are integrated into everyday life and everyday world and everyday plans. <clears throat> so when disasters actually do occur, knowing which binder to grab off the shelf, let alone what's inside of it and what you might need to have on hand before you even start that list can be a mystery. And this just adds to the confusion. By adopting that mindset yeah. okay. of all hazards, one framework, the basic actions and needs are all the same. Whether we're looking, having a, having a discussion about healthcare, whether we're having a discussion about climate change, whether we're having a discussion about a wildfire, it seems to all come together then. For all disasters, you can have one basic plan to learn and to follow. Successful disaster preparedness and response tends to be less than knowing exactly every single step and singling having a separate set of list of things to do or ways to act. What ends up being important is what do you have on hand? Do you have what you need to have on hand and how can you move forward? So whether you're facing snow, rain, fire, earthquakes, landslides, volcanoes, or disease outbreaks, the questions really do remain the same. Do you have a plan to take care of yourself? Do you have a plan to take care of your family? Do you have a plan to take care of your pets? Do you have a plan to take care of your business? Do you have a plan to take care of your property? If any disaster comes along. And the basic needs across any one of these particular scenarios are fairly constant. The needs for food, water, clothing, housing, fuel, identification, medications, safe place to be? And do you have more than one way of maintaining these needs over a set period of time? Not just an hour, but days to weeks. Personally, I've had that same complement of items in my backpacks for decades, like my go bags, if you will. And it really hasn't mattered if I was being the one sent out as a disaster responder or if I was sheltering at home just because there was a blizzard or a hurricane. So having this kind of a mindset in looking at so many of the problems, one health issues, one nature issues, you may have heard some of those terms uh, over time and climate change issues, it all comes down to that. Do we have a, a plan that we can use to, that can address many things all at once, simple education, simple awareness, simple planning and coordination with other groups and entities. And what's amazing, Sean and Marco, is that when you have that one approach, that one plan and, and you are prepared, it gives you the ability then to take a step back, pull the plane up to that 20,000 foot view and look at, okay, what can we do as individuals and even as a society to mitigate or even prevent some of these disasters. Now you can't prevent a hurricane, but what can we do about climate change? What can we do about global warming? What can we do about pollution? What can we do to prevent some of the most preventable disasters or at least keep the unpreventable disasters from becoming complex disasters where one cascades into the next, into the next, and into the next. Yeah, and I want to I want to dig into this a little bit if I can, because uh, yeah, 
actually come from from a space where wildfires are are, are a thing, and the the community that that I lived in actually did a pretty decent job. You mentioned the word binder, and that's what triggered it for me. Pretty decent job of putting together materials to help us understand what a what a plan might look like, what our go bag might be, what our exit plan might be, what the return plan might look like. Uh, where do we shelter? Where do there's a lot of horses in this area in particular? Uh, so where do the horses go? Where do the dogs and other animals go? And it's it, it, it they, like I said, they, I think they did a pretty good job, but it was very focused on fire. And it's this place also in being in California uh, has uh, earthquakes as well. So a lot of it could overlap into that. So I'm interested to know, and my probably my bigger, broader question, taking a step back from that, is what does High, Insti High Alert Institute do? do? Do you actually provide the framework for communities like that? Um, or are you, because I heard you talking about helping individuals, but then also training first responders and even counties and things. So how and where do you fit into the big picture of, of all of this? Well, we have a number of, of programs in the High Alert Institute. Uh, and those, among those programs, you know, we maintain a curated library of reviewed disaster readiness education resources, as well as disaster and business continuity planning resources that are free or nearly free and are provided by highly reputable sources. Some are from FEMA themselves, the EMI Institute. Uh, some are from, uh, from uh, major universities like Teeks in Texas. Uh, over 4,000 links on our website to that exactly the type of education you're talking about, Sean. Some is very specific. You mentioned uh, specifically earthquake and wildfires, and there are certain specific things for safety during an event, what we call the response phase, that you need to do. Uh, some are risk assessment. You lived in an area where the high, where some of the highest risks were wildfire and earthquake. I live in Florida. I happen to live inside of a state forest, so wildfire is one of my risks, but it's a very wet uh, forest compared to what would be in California. So my wildfire risk is relatively low, except for a few months out of the year. Having the tools to assess that risk allows me to have a very different go bag and a very different overall plan, single plan, than you have, but it still accounts for my needs in the event that there is a fire here, uh, just as yours did when in California in the event, the more likely event of a wildfire. And how, how about um, the, the alert piece, um, being notified? Because um, in, in particular, and I'm just going on my own experience, and maybe this helps people, or I don't know if it does or not, but in, in, my, in the particular area I was located, there was no cell service. So one had to have a landline, but of course the lines are on uh, power poles that are made of wood. And if there's a fire, those burn down. And so you can't get the phone call and you can't get the alert. So how, do you help with understanding the risk involved with getting people the information that they are in danger? And I don't know if, how that changes um, looking at tornadoes or hurricanes or, or other events uh, that, that come along. Well, Sean, it's an excellent question. That is part of that risk assessment. The first part, part of any planning, whether it's business, general business planning, or whether it's disaster planning, is to take a look at where you are and what are, your, what are the risks as well as the opportunities. Effectively, it's a SWOT or a gap analysis. Uh, we call them a in disaster and emergency management, we call them risk assessments. So in a wildfire, one of the risks is loss of communication. You have not just the loss of the, of the, of the uh, power poles and the telephone lines, uh, but even buried lines can be disrupted uh, both by the fire itself as well as by the earth moving equipment that's used to make fire breaks. The cell towers can be lost or they can be so far apart that there are gaps or, or, or uh, dead areas. We're all familiar with having dead zones in, in cellular coverage. And the last is even satellite phones can be blocked by the smoke from the wildfires. So that communication, that alert system means that you have to be able to define in your locality what is specific to you. All disasters are local. 
what is specific to you at that risk assessment phase before you even write the plan? What other forms of communication do you need to monitor during wildfire season? Do you need a weather or other alert radio? Do you need, in addition to your cell phone, do you need to be watching the news regularly? Do you need to develop a habit of listening to radio? Not satellite, not, not the fun satellite radio, but regular <laughs> broadcast FM and even AM to monitor and be aware during hurricane, or excuse me, during wildfire season. For me, it's hurricane season. What's mm -hmm. happening? Because your main means of communication may go down and you may not even know it. Uh, a, a very good example here at the, at the Institute's facility, we have triple redundant communication. And yet yesterday, for reasons that uh, our local phone service still hasn't explained to us, the phone, the hardline phone system to the entire state forest went down. And the only reason we knew it is that we that we have a uh, we have an alert on the phone that's a visual alert. And if the phone line goes dead, it loses that 24 volt AC current that it usually runs. This this signal goes on so that we know that that means of communication is out. And the reason we did it is that the phone system in, in the state forest is 56 years old. And so we had to be able to uh, monitor it because it has a it has a downtime of about 12 percent out of the year. Wow. And this comes from people like you two that are very knowledgeable and really think ahead of everything. But yet there are certain things that you just can't do anything about it. But so th 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 that makes me think about, you know, the regular people that has to face that and how much they, you know, it's it's the human psychology. Well, we'll worry about that when that happens. And, and, and that, thank God there are people like you and other organizations that help us to think ahead. Um, apart from the, the disaster readiness in, in general, which of course, as you say, is a, is a, and Alison said, is a frame that applies to everything. I'm really interested in, in some other programs with the Project for Good, like the animal wellness and, and environmental se section. Um, Alison, can you tell us, tell us a little bit more about that? The Animal care and welfare and environmental section is one of the three sections that we've divided the Institute into uh, based on the types of projects that we're involved in. Um, we have a disaster readiness section as well. And then we have a third section that is a combination, it sounds like an odd marriage, but a combination of space, healthcare, and artificial intelligence informatics. Now, when we do our podcast on that particular section, that will become clear as to why those two things are joined the way they are. Uh, but our <laughs> animal wellness and environmental section, one of the projects that we have in there is, is our, is our on-site animal shelter that we have specifically for non-native aquatics. Why do we have non-native aquatics? Uh, it simply can't, was an outcropping of our personal koi meditation pond that we had here at the Institute. And as we were looking to, <clears throat> pardon me, expand some things here uh, in as far as what our scope was going to be and the different things we were getting involved in, we were looking into ways that we could contribute to specifically from this particular site to environmental needs. And one of the needs that we ended up finding out about was the lack of non-native aquatic shelters across the United States. We are one of, I know there's two in flux, but I, so there's 22, I believe currently, we are one of 22 across the entire nation, specifically for non-native aquatics. And these are freshwater aquatics, not dolphins or manatees or anything. Those often have their own facilities that may or may not be associated directly with a uh, rescue and rehoming program or uh, a zoo or aquarium. The non-native aquatics uh, seem to be kind of like the orphan child. And so many of these poor animals end up getting just dumped into the streams, rivers, ponds, across the United States. And it's not just in the United States that this is a problem. Uh, there are big programs in Canada and in Australia that, that also are concentrated on trying to 
work with these animals that have been released into the, into the wild. It is not a solution to re to reduce to release your koi pond that you don't want anymore, for instance, into the local pond or stream. These are non-native. These are considered in, uh, invasive species to the local habitat. They will out uh, out resource the native aquatics there. They are they weren't born to eat the same foods, for instance. So they have a higher level of waste coming from what they're ingesting, which changes the environment. They will out they will out eat and uh, out produce the other native species that are there. And this is definitely a problem for recreational fisher people, uh, uh, for preservation of, of species and habitats in other areas. It is, and these animals live for a very long time. People don't realize that koi can live a hundred or more years. These are animals that have to be, uh, if you own them or are caring for them, plans have to be made for them if you are no longer able to take care of them or in the event of, 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 of one's death. These are animals that you actually, people actually will to each other or will to a charitable organization so that they don't have to be destroyed. So it was just kind of by happenstance that we came into that particular uh, shelter community. And I've worked for years in rescue operations of different, of different other species, dogs, cats, rabbits, horses, working with a number of those different organizations over time but this was not something that would be easy to do, to run the Institute and to do all of those activities simultaneously uh, as we are involved in so many other things. So that, that became our little, our, our little pet project, no, no, no pun intended, here at the Institute. <laughs> I, I was racking my brain trying to figure out where I just saw that literally within the last day or two. I saw something, I don't know if it was an ad or, uh, or some PSA about uh, willing koi. Uh, to to folks because they do live long, um, so interesting you you bring that up. And the, one of your last points was it, this was a pet project because you have so much going on. And and I mean we haven't even scratched the surface on all the things that that both of you are doing. But how how do you determine what to what to focus on? Do you have do you have like a huge list of things you know need to have attention and you. You prioritize and work your way down, seek help for others you can't reach. How do you, how do you kind of organize all of that? That's an excellent question, one that we are asked quite often, Sean. Uh, we have a number of programs. One is what we call Projects for Good. And to become a Project for Good, has, you have to have one of or all three of the following characteristics. First is that it has to yield a significant impact. And the first question we always get is, well, how does a koi shelter and rescue have a significant impact. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service estimates that released koi and their progeny cost commercial fishing just in the Great Lakes and uh, Mississippi River Basin and the Florida uh, wetlands and estuaries, $70 billion in losses a year. Now, part of that is catching animals that then contaminate the other animals because nobody eats ornamental carp. Uh, some of that is the destruction of habitats that results in, in decreased uh, commercial fishing and sport fishing populations. Some of that is the fact that these animals are so large that they outgrow the size of the local predators and force alterations in migration patterns in those fish. And some of them is they just destroy uh, fishery equipment so yeah we have a great I also i also heard that. that they sorry maurice because i also and I'm, i might be incorrect here but i think they is it true that they also change the the makeup of the water they use oxygen and and things in a different way absolutely because as yeah. allison mentioned they produce more waste than than the native animals they increase the amount of they increase the amount of bacteria and algae the algae there therefore results in a decrease in that oxygen in the oxygen level. 
Koi and carp are somewhat oxygen sensitive, but they can tolerate a lower oxygen level than more active fish like sports fish and fish for uh, freshwater commercial fishing. So they, they uh, suffocate those animals out. And when the animals can move, for instance, in the Great Lakes or Mississippi Basin, those animals do move and they move out of areas that are easily fished into areas where the large koi can't get, as well as, the, unfortunately, the commercial and sports fishermen can't get at them. Uh, the other part is that that decreased oxygen tension that you mentioned results in slower reproduction of those commercially and sports fished animals, as well as outright fish, fish deaths, sometimes very large scale fish deaths, as has been seen in a number of lakes and, and waterways here in Florida, as well as all up and down the, mid, the, mid, uh, the middle of the United States. So much to learn. I don't know how you guys can can stay on top of all of this. I can't, I'm kind of reading the notes that you share with us, and I'm still like, I want to go everywhere. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a very simple question, like a concrete example of one of the projects that maybe you're more, I'm not going to say more passionate because it sounds to me you're passionate in everything you do. You wouldn't do, you wouldn't be doing this, but an example to really show, you know, tell people that are listening how, you know, how a specific project may work. And I, I was reading about the, the disaster behavioral health training, for example, like how do you, how do you proceed when you, when you, when you find something that need attention? I'll be happy to feel that one, Marco. Yes, please. In, in, in keeping our roots in disaster response, uh, the Institute has been developing a disaster behavioral health training and educational program for persons involved in disasters affecting animals. Maurice and I and a number of our directors and, and in-house experts have worked in this field on and off for many years. This program in particular, though, that we're developing now is being created for the benefit of government and non-government responders to animal care and welfare crises, as well as the human populations that they serve when they are responding to these particular crises. For instance, an outbreak of avian flu. There have been uh, several of them that have been in the news in the past year. A farming community uh, may require the destruction of a significant number of, of birds. These are animals that they've raised from chicks to prevent the spread of disease to, to people and into the food sources. Getting through this type of a disaster is difficult for everyone involved, understandably. The emotional and psychological toll that it has on workers whether, again, whether they're from federal agencies or as volunteers, the effects on families, the farm families, the local communities, the schools and the children in the schools can be devastating. But at least by having a training and education program, a plan to prepare as best as you can beforehand and knowing where to go for help for you, for your team, for your family, for your school, for your community has been shown to be very beneficial and also reduce the risk of suicide. What, what strikes me there is, I mean, that, that last point that you just made, things work a certain way, right? And when there's a disaster that, that just kind of, all that kind of gets blown out of the water and, and, and things change and we all have to figure out how to not just deal with the disaster, but then come back together and in perhaps temporary, uh, temporary operating environment, and then find our way back to quote unquote a new normal. And that can be hard for for some. Um, and I guess the first thing that comes to mind there is kind of the the divide. Um, we talk about it a lot uh, from a technical perspective, the digital divide, but um, there's financial and fiscal divide and uh, I suspect that that uh, some communities have a tougher time uh, preparing and managing and dealing and they need support from others to help them as well um, I don't know if you can if you can comment on that where 
where people come together to, to kind of help shore things up where, where things are needed. Well, Sean, that is exactly the reason the Highlight Institute was founded. We don't just provide education and resource and research, but our entire focus is to work with and for those individuals, organizations, uh, institutions, businesses, uh, and to a degree communities that are underserved, that have an unfunded mandate, who don't have the resources to financial resources to hire the $50,000, $100,000 consultant to bring in a team of trainers or to bring in an, a crisis response team in the event that the disaster has already struck and now they're trying to, to prevent uh, the emotional and psychological impacts as well as the financial and economic impacts in their community. Uh, this is the reason that we, that we host so much uh, free education. It's the reason that uh, you know, to quote our founding fathers, we've pledged our, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honors as, as experts for good, as found, co-founders, Allison and myself, our board members. Uh, we have in total over 84 uh, high, highly trained experts and in, individ, individually who volunteer their time, time that they could sell otherwise at, at very high costs in some cases. Uh, specifically to help in areas that otherwise would go, as you said, unserved because they didn't have that resource. They didn't know where to get the resource and or they couldn't afford the resource. Yeah, it's impossible to think that with as much passion that someone can have to, to tap into all of this <laughs> you know, just in two people or even a hundred people. So I would love to learn more about how you, in these 20 years of the organization, but even before with both your careers, where where are all your resources? Who is collaborating to the, to the success of the High Alert Institute? I'm thinking partners, you, you mentioned experts and maybe even like businesses, like a little understanding on how can you accomplish all of this? Well, we've been very blessed, uh, Marco and Sean. We have a very active uh, a board of directors. We have had the benefit of, of many, uh, both partners for good, which are how corporations participate, as well as, as uh, subject matter experts who participate as experts for good. And there are several ways that individual corporations and even institutions of higher learning can participate with, uh, with the, the Institute, its programs, and support its projects. As individuals, we have subject matter experts, as I said, who volunteer, and other subject matter experts who are among your listeners certainly can join uh, our volunteer core of subject matter experts who work on specific programs uh, as experts for good. And yeah, by the way, they get, they, they get uh, a tax receipt for the time that they spend doing that. Uh, you know, we're located here in Lake Wales, Florida. As I said, uh, we are in a state forest. Those people who are local to us can volunteer at our aquatic animal shelter and rescue when we have a response need. Uh, those individuals who are interested in maximizing the impact of their charitable donations, quite frankly, can become donors online. Uh, it's simple and it's easy or put on their own fundraiser. We even have a facility for that on our website. And the, and the individuals in college programs can become interns in our new Intern for Good program. Uh, we are now trying to train the next generation of impassioned people who will take that all hazards one framework approach and apply it in areas that Allison and I and our board and our current cadre of experts can't even imagine, we hope. And I'm, I'm going to pause you there quickly, Maurice, because sure. I, I suspect um, my view is people often travel to out of state to different colleges and then back home or to other places once they find uh, work in the fields that they studied for, presumably. Um, which to me says that a lot of what they learn as, as part of this Interns for Good program begins to spread outside of uh, the core areas that you operate. Have you, That's what have we you hope. seen that yet? Yeah. We, 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 already have, we already work remotely. 
uh, with all of our experts. And unlike the vast majority of businesses who began remote work in 2020 with the pan with the pandemic and the pandemic shutdowns, we've been working remotely with our experts uh, since 2011. And in some cases, even back uh, as far as 2007, we work remotely because our ex we, we prefer to work with the experts who are truly experts in their field and not just nationally. We work internationally with experts uh, all over the world. And, with and we're also partnered with uh, 48 other corporations around the world who have you know, products or services or algorithms or ideas uh, some of which they're not even developing for their own commercial use uh, that can support a project for good or that can support another type of program uh, or that they just want to see it have some impact. It's Allison and I have consulted in the medical and regulatory uh, industry for, as she said, almost 30 years. It is amazing the number of corporations that develop intellectual property that they develop along the along the way towards an ultimate product, but it's not for that product. And that patent or that copyright or that idea or that process or that device gets placed off to the side. It actually becomes a liability on their balance sheet. And we have a number of companies that have donated those or donated the knowledge about them to allow us to try to have an impact with them in other fields, fields that the original inventors never, never dreamed of. Uh, and we, it became so common that last year or two years ago, excuse me, we started the IP for good program to allow for trans technology transfer. And uh, among the things that are in technology transfer right now are two renewable energy programs that will increase the efficiency of animal care and animal welfare in one case and will reduce the, the social determinants of health noise uh, risk with wind turbines in another, in another situation. Yeah, you, you call this section, uh, or this section is all about, this podcast is all about an, an other society. And we look at that. Everybody thinks in terms of corporations and, and entrepreneurs as being very self-centric. Uh, very profit centric, and what we find is that really there is an other society in that in that big air, uh, category called entrepreneurs, who are very interested in yeah I have to make my profit I have to be able to survive and pay my bills and feed my family prepare for my own disasters and have my own resources, but I have all this other stuff and I want to share it and I want to see it do something good I just don't know how. And that's part of what the Institute does is that it helps those individuals who want that impact, those corporations that want that impact to bring those goods, those services to that larger impact, that larger opportunity to do good in the world. And then sometimes that, that innovation can, can have a much bigger impact than uh, a monetary donation from an organization and the, the, the engineers or whomever's building and innovating uh, feel pretty good about that stuff too. Absolutely. Super, and super very cool. often corporate, uh, yeah, a company may not have the, the fiscal uh, resources to, to write a check, but they have something far more value, valuable, as you said, Sean, sitting there on the shelf that they're not even using, that in some cases they've almost forgotten about, that they mention on the way out the door as they're apologizing for not being able to help. And yeah, it turns out to be something of, of immense value and contribution. Well, if there is one thing that I've learned from prior conversation with uh, with you, uh, you know, it's fascinating, and it, it really makes you think. Um, I think about the overview effect, you know, when, the one the astronauts get when they see the planet from from above, and it's like it's just one unique and one connected synergic. Uh, organism in a way and I'm, I'm describing now your logo for the people that listen to the podcast and of course they can find that on on the page for defining society which is the planet and then there is a vitruvian uh, man so we could have an entire story on that one i guess but <laughs> i think it will be for one of the next episode i would like uh allison and maurice to take this last couple of minutes to tease our audience maybe 
for what we will talk about in the next uh, two episodes, which will still be about introduction to what you guys do. So why should they stay tuned for the next episode as well? In coming episodes, we'll be talking about disaster readiness. And because disaster readiness is more than just planning and preparation and giving some very specific examples, as, as Sean alluded to, uh, of what individuals can do just to be more disaster ready within their own, within their own families and homes, as well as in their businesses. And we have a saying, we want everyone to, pl- to, to prepare or be ready the way they're going to play. We want them to, to practice the way they're going to play. We want the day that the crisis strikes to be as close to a normal business and family day as is possible, given the circumstances. And that happens through good planning. We'll then, we'll also be uh, talking about our animal wellness and environmental program. And Allison can give you a few more uh, peeks behind the curtain, as it were, as to what we'll talk about with that. We will we'll be sharing with you some of the things that we're trying to help with in the animal care and welfare world and in the environmental one nature, one model, one health paradigm that, that has existed for decades across many different like-minded organizations. And there are a few holes that have evolved over time and how we're trying to help fill those as Maurice mentioned, many of these mandates uh, occur without necessarily the funding to make them happen for, for many organizations, whether it be government or small, small, smaller organizations trying to be compliant with those mandates. And we've been able to put together some programs to help them meet those needs, taking that on ourselves, taking on that burden and, and supplying that for free. And the, and along the way, uh, we'll be salting in uh, li- some of our pro- projects for good that have some surprising Im- uh, impacts and uh, in some cases, some surprising partners, as well as uh, yeah, just a, very, a great potential to do global good as well as local good. And then we'll also be covering... Uh, our space and uh, space healthcare and AI informatics, uh, which came to us in a very odd way in that we were originally asked to address uh, disaster medicine in space. And as disaster experts, it made sense uh, that we would be approached, but these are areas that a lot of, of the space faring agencies have already addressed very well. In fact, uh, NASA was one of our clients many years ago and has taken the lead in the area of, of uh, space disa- potential space disaster. Uh, but along the way, we discovered that there were other areas in space healthcare uh, that needed to be addressed from a, from a whole new approach to the framework of regulation and uh, even jurisdictions. Well, I'm really excited for that. Sean, what do you think? Well, I mean, yeah, there's, there's so much more to to cover. I mean, uh, animals, I love animals, and, and space is cool. And and when you start to get into the tech like AI, where everything's driven by data, and uh, I also happen to love uh, the whole health care tech, health tech space as well. Um, for me, I'm just really excited to to hear more about uh, all the things that you're up to and and how they aren't just pet projects uh, they're they're actually things that that uh, make a difference and uh, hopefully we can get into some of the those uh, details as well for some of the outcomes that you've seen as we dig in deeper to some of these topics absolutely and uh, the reason why I have no doubts that it was going to be an ongoing collaboration is exactly this. I mean, every single conversation, Maurice and Alison, that we had prior to start recording this podcast, you always bring some really interesting topic and partnership and collaboration and experts. So I'm very honored, and we are, I can speak with Sean, for Sean as well, to have you as a 
ongoing, serious, permanent guest, and uh, hopefully sometimes even a host on some of the conversation, and that we can organize some panels together. So with that said, we're already in the 50 minutes mark, so I'm going to thank you so much for this first episode. I want to invite everybody that wants to learn more about the High Alert Institute and every topics that they touch to stay tuned because there'll be um, another two introductory uh, episode about what they do. And then at that point, we're just going to go and start uh, diving in into individual topics. So again, uh, Maurice and Allison, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being part of this. Oh, it's been our pleasure, Marco and Sean. We really appreciate having this conversation with both of you for sharing a few insights into what we're doing, what we're all about, sharing that passion that we have and that we are collecting from others that we meet. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It's been an absolute honor. Absolutely. And for everybody that enjoy listening to Redefining Society on ITSP Magazine, there will be links and resources. Of course, uh, the website is highalertinstitute.org, but we will put all those uh, notes in a written form and hyperlink in the in the episode notes. So we hope that you maybe ask some questions. Maybe the next episode uh, we will open up uh, for comments that you may leave from this first one. Again, thank you very much, everybody. And uh, Sean, thank you for joining me. Uh, always yeah, a pleasure. Glad to be on it. Glad to be on it. It's all about the people, pets, and the planet. Hey. And robots and, uh, and, and aliens and all of that. So <laughs> really cool. All right. Thank, thank you. you very much, everybody. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of if you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.